Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Once every three years about this time in early fall, our Sunday morning gospel reading confronts us with some mighty difficult sayings of Jesus, exhortations of the Lord Christ, speaking to his listeners in no uncertain terms, never mincing a word, and steering clear of anything close to equivocation. To use a paraphrase of the gospel, if your hand or your foot gets in your way and shuts out the light of God's spirit, then chop it off and throw it away. You're better off maimed or lamed and alive than the proud owner of two hands and two feet, godless in a furnace of eternal fire. Doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? And if your eye distracts you from God, pluck it out and throw it away. You're better off one-eyed and alive than exercising your 2020 vision from inside the fire of hell. We have to put these words into context, and we're good at that. They come to us from St. Mark's narrative, the earliest gospel of the four, the chronicler of Jesus' life and ministry who believed with all his heart, soul, and mind that the end was at hand that Christ as judge was on the horizon, that the kingdom on earth was just about to materialize for those who were qualified. Mark's Jesus speaks with such piercing directness that it must have caused his hearers to sit up and take notice, and not only take notice, but to act. And to act here is to repent, to turn around, to make an about face lest hope of abundant life would be lost forever. So this master of language, this Jesus, uses a linguistic tool here called hyperbole to get the point across. He exaggerates his case. He overstates it. He magnifies his word about sin and the consequences of sin. He's not at all calling for self-mutilization or bodily mortification when it comes to human transgression, trying to get his listeners' attention so that salvation doesn't pass them by and leave them outside in the cold. And so he speaks in the drastic tense to wake up the sluggards and the slothful. I wonder what biblical literists do with this passage. You know, I haven't noticed many cho churches where the lamed and the, the maimed sit, sit in the pews they must use logic and reason like we do. Some of you may recall the uproarious incident on this topic during the presidential campaign of 1976. It's quite instructive. Jimmy Carter, a choir boy, if there ever was one, a Bible thumper in the best sense of the word, a humble specimen of humankind who knew right from wrong, Jimmy Carter agreed to do an interview with a magazine He'd probably never read. He did an interview with two men from Playboy magazine during his race for the White House, and he lived to rue it to regret. Rather than be seen by the voting public as a paragon of virtue, which we were seeing at the time, a much holier-than-thou human specimen, and wanting to appear, as he said later, more like one of the boys, 
Carter admitted to interviewees that his wandering eye had on occasion committed the sin of lust. I've looked with the eyes of lust, he said. I've committed adultery in my heart many times. And rather than pull his eye out of the socket or cut off his hands or some other drastic measure, he simply confessed to being a human being. And he thought that might win him some points. And as you may well recall, all hell broke loose. We, we were still capable of experiencing shock 40 years ago, especially when it came to a person of stature. In this case, a presidential candidate and what we very lovingly call a big Baptist. So shocked were we at Carter's lascivious thoughts, not his behavior, mind you, just his prurient interests, that his popularity dropped 15% in the polls the week that followed his announcement, his admission. Years later, Carter reflected on that interview, and he said, understatedly, I wish I had not agreed to it. How things have changed. In our day, I wonder if these hyperbolic statements of Jesus would ever be noticed. We've been so white, we've so whitewashed sin and rationalized misbehavior and gone squishy on acting out of line that the lake of fire seems to hold little sway when it comes to serving as a behavioral corrective. Now, I suspect that Jimmy Carter would be one individual who could hear Jesus' warning and take Jesus at his word. I suspect, I'm not sure about this, but I suspect that Jimmy would be one who could clean up his act, straighten out his behavior, fly right. Carter's nature and constitution of character may well have the pizzazz, the wherewithal, the willpower, and the self-knowledge to resist temptation and to forevermore live on the straight and narrow. But for the rest of us, 98% of us, I would guess, we don't seem to have a constitution like that, especially those of us who have what the moderns call an addictive personality. We're the ones who could hear all the warnings, alarms, and threats in the world and still wander down that primrose path that leads to perdition. And were it not for God's grace to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, we'd fall into the great abyss the kind of Adam and Eve fall, the lapsus that results in alienation and disconnection from all that gives us life. You remember Paul Harvey? Where did he go? Did he die? A popular radio commentator of some years ago. Harvey would tell part of a dramatic tale on his popular show. He'd go to a commercial break, and he'd come back with some incredible words, and they were these. And now for the rest of the story. Oh, the rest of the story. Christians have to have the rest of the story if we're ever to follow the commands of Jesus. We can only read the gospel with the rest of the story in mind. When Jesus makes drastic statements about changing behavior, or John the Baptist screeches for repentance from sin, we cannot leave grace out of our response to their preachments. That is to say, the power that comes from the cross, the knowledge that God is doing for us and will be doing for us what we cannot or never can do for ourselves. Taking drastic action on questionable behaviors without reliance 
on the gift of God's grace will get us nowhere. It's simply a stopgap measure. Now, the very best sermon I ever saw on this topic, notice my verb here, the best sermon I ever saw on this topic was on the first Sunday of Advent in the year 2000. It was preached at St. Paul's Chapel in the financial district of New York City. It was right up the street from my old place, Trinity Wall Street. 9-11 was yet to occur, and a typical Sunday at St. Paul's Chapel had me celebrating a 7.30 Holy Communion with 13 other faithful souls who had sat in the same pews week after week since the time of Moses. And on that first Sunday of the Christian year, Advent 1, I decided, probably without wisdom, to rev the liturgy up a notch, to add some needed spice after thousands of years, to do something to inspect, to inject spirit. On that particular Sunday, we had three newcomers. We were 16 that day. I feared that our liturgical lassitude might send the newcomers running. The newbies were a young mother, a young dad, and a six-year-old son. At sermon time, I walked into the nave right there at the chancel crossing and asked for a volunteer with the homily. Well, the congregation froze at the very thought of it. They became apoplectic. They bowed their heads in prayer that I would return to Arkansas and never come back. No one had dared, injected a, an, an, dared inject an enthusiastic tack with that congregation since the day the 1928 Books of Common Prayer were distributed. But I persevered. Can I have a volunteer for the homily? Well, this six-year-old newcomer knocked us all for a loop when he raised his hand and in a flat voice said, I'll do it. Well, I jumped on it like a chicken on a June bug. Come forward, my boy. I honor your willingness to give substance to my homily. What's your name? And of all the names that he could possibly have given, he said Christian. And my hom homiletical wheels turned. I thought, of course, Christian. Oh, this is a morality play. This is every man in the pew in a time-honored fashion of medieval drama. It couldn't have been better. Earlier today, Lisa, who had heard this sermon once, she said, was all that really true? I said, yes, it was. <laughs> I whispered to Christian that this being the first Sunday of Advent, I was going to play John the Baptist in our skit, and he was going to play a sinner, what in the 1928 Book of Common Prayer called a notorious and evil liver. I told him to walk the main aisle of the chapel of the church. Truly, the primrose path that leads to the tarnished gates that open wide to sin city itself. And Christian, when you get to the doors back there and start to open them, I, John the Baptist, will screech at you and yell, Repent ye, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? I want you to turn around, mend your ways, and start walking the king's highway that leads to salvation. Get it? And this little guy said, got it. So little Christian, all of 40 inches tall, swaggered down the primrose path on his journey toward the flesh pots of the big apple. 
And as he approached the narthex doors, perhaps a point of no return, I screeched the exhortation of the Baptist. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The time is nigh. And Christian turned, and he paused for a second or two. I suppose he was trying to get the biblical story straight in his mind and what was to be his response at that moment. And because he took such an extended moment or two or three, I have a hunch that he was also augmenting his response with a bit of the prodigal son's tale of woe. Christian conflated the two stories. Instead of walking the king's highway as a way of repentance and return, he charged up the main aisle at supersonic speed. And when he got to the third pew, just about where Peter and Carolyn are sitting right over there, he leapt up into the air. He flew 10 feet like a speeding bullet. He landed in my outstretched arms. He hugged me for all that I'm worth. And he said the words most dear to the Savior's heart. He said, I'm home. I'm home. And that congregation, the frozen chosen, if frozen chosen, if ever there were such a group, they defrosted on the spot. They wept and carried on in such a way that I thought that they might go out and kill the fatted calf and we would have a festival. <laughs> now notice in this morality play, and I took meaning from it. I don't know if anybody else did. This morality play which popped out of nowhere, Christian didn't clean up his act when the word came and the drastic threats were issued. He didn't pluck his eye out. He didn't cut off his hands. He didn't put tape on his mouth. He knew that those were but band-aids. He obviously knew that such would only be a stopgap matter. Instead, he ran back into the arms of love, the place where love casts out fear, knowing intuitively that it's fear that is our real problem, fear of losing what we have, fear of not getting what we want triggering every single one of our character defects. This little Christian traded his independent and willful behavior for an embrace and a welcome. He knew he couldn't save himself by relying on himself, but only in a relationship with the one from whence real help is available and abundant. Home, he said. Love in the form of an embrace, security, safety salvation. This little Christian certainly repented in the best sense of the word, but he did not do it with his own set of resources. He returned to the source, the source of power, where God could do for him what he would never be able to do for himself. You have to know the rest of the story. It's the best sermon I ever saw. Now, there's no way in the world to affect a lasting change in behavior without relationship without knowing that we can love and be loved, without a father or a mother's outstretched arms appearing before we ever squeeze out a word of confession or apology, have to know the rest of the story and rely on and depend on as if we mean it the gift of Jesus' grace, if we are ever to change things in ways that befit the kingdom that is promised. Oh, I found a wonderful thing on Netflix the other day. It's a movie called A Trip to Bountiful. Have you ever seen that movie? Uh, it's one of those dear movies back in the days when we made dear and sweet movies. Watch it. 
If we were in a revival tent somewhere, I'd probably have an altar call and I would be singing this song like George Beverly Shea. It's the kind of the obligato that runs through that entire movie. The hymn would be this. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Do you know that hymn? Some of you do. Calling for you and for me. See on the portals he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. And then the refrain is, come home, come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, O sinner, come home, come home. I would stop there, but I've got to give you the second verse, which is never sung. Time is now fleeting, the moments are passing, passing from you and from me. Shadows are gathering, deathbeds are coming, coming for you and for me. Come home, come home. You who are weary, come home, earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. We stand. And now unto God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be ascribed as is most justly due, all might, dominion, majesty, power, and glory from henceforth and forevermore, world without end. Amen. Amen.